Well, last week we finished the seven trumpets and chapter 11 of Revelation. And as we move now into chapter 12 of Revelation, it may not be obvious to everyone that we're halfway through the book. Revelation has 22 chapters, and we just finished the 11th. And if you're good at math, you'll know that means halfway. Now, uh, chapter 12 is also seen by Bible scholars as something of a beginning of the new section in Revelation. So it introduces the second half. There, there is a natural uh, division in the book of Revelation. But Revelation 12 also provides us a nice case study of how to interpret the book of Revelation in a number of different ways. It's one of the easier visions in Revelation to interpret. Doesn't mean everything's easy in it. There's no vision like that in the book of Revelation. But this is easier than most, in my opinion. Now before I read the story this morning, we're going to handle Revelation 12 in two parts. I'm going to do the first six verses this morning. But it's really one section. It's just too long to digest in one week. So we're going to do 1 through 6 this week and 7 through 17 next week. But we're going to read the whole thing this week to get context. But before I read that, I'd like to remind us of four Bible stories that we should keep in mind as we're reading this. The first one occurs right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, after the fall of man into sin, when God is announcing his curse upon the serpent, and then later he curses Adam and Eve. But as he's announcing his curse upon the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring that is Satan's offspring, and her offspring, the woman's offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now the pronouns there may sound strange, and if you haven't really looked at this carefully, you know, he's talking about um, the woman's offspring, but suddenly he says he because he's referring to a male offspring of the woman, namely Jesus. He, that is, not the woman, but a male seed of the woman. And then when he says your, he's talking to the, about the serpent. So he's talking about this great battle, this great warfare that is beginning here between Jesus, the seed of the woman, and Satan and his followers. Okay, second story is the Exodus. That one should be very familiar to us, where God delivered his people out of Egypt. And where did he bring them as a refuge from their slavery? He brought them into the wilderness. The wilderness was not a place of luxury or abundance. But it was a place of refuge for them. And God fed them there and took care of them. 
The third story is the story of Elijah, who, as a prophet, announced that there would be a great famine on the land, a great uh, drought, for three and a half years. And God sustained Elijah, uh, Elijah again in the wilderness during those three and a half years of drought. The fourth and final story that I'd like you to keep in mind is the story of King Herod and his slaughter, what is we call the slaughter of the innocents, where he found out from the, the Magi about the birth of the Messiah and he did everything he could to try to kill the baby Jesus um, even as he was a baby. Matthew 2. Okay, so those four stories and now I'm going to read the passage. Revelation 12, 1-6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and seven horns and on his heads seven diadems, crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule, I'm sorry, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now that's the part I'm going to preach on. But now I'm going to continue and read the second part, just for context. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth... He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child 
But the woman was given two wings of, a, of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. By the way, what I said about this being easier refers to the first half, not to the second half. We'll get to the second half next week. Okay. A radiant woman crying out in labor. A male child to whom she gives birth. A monstrous dragon. As hideous as the woman is beautiful. Now let's talk about the characters in this vision and the indicators which point to their identities. The easiest is the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns in verse 3. And it's easy because verse 9 tells us who he is. Verse 9 also tells us the identity of the one-third of the stars of heaven whom he cast down to the earth. Let me read 12.9. The great dragon was thrown down, the, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that's who the dragon is. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So the dragon is the devil and the stars that he swept down are his demons. All the angels who fell. The male child, of course, is Jesus. Everybody agree, Pretty much everybody agrees with that. That's clear when we read verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You see how God tells us who this is by the description, a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That language is right out of Psalm 2, 7 to 9, where God says to his Messiah, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's also a vision of Jesus coming up in Revelation 19, verses 15 and 16, which uses the same language. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's clear who the male child is. 
And when it says her child was caught up to God and to his throne, that seems to combine the resurrection and the ascension into one description. Well, who the woman is, is a little bit more controversial. In verse 1 and 2, a great sign appeared, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, pregnant and crying out in birth pangs and the agony of giving birth. It isn't surprising to me that Catholics and probably Orthodox believers see this woman as Mary being the mother of who's giving birth to Jesus. It's also not surprising to you probably that I agree with the Protestant interpretation that this woman is the church. The problem with seeing her as Mary is that she doesn't just give birth to Jesus She is then persecuted. She flees into the desert for refuge. She has many other children who are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Plus, her time of being nourished in the wilderness is the same period of time as we've seen in chapter 11 and elsewhere as the church age. All this goes beyond anything that could be said about Mary and her other children. This points us to the church as the correct interpretation. Now, this woman has an existence before Christ's birth and after Christ's departure. So when we say that she represents the church, we mean the Old Testament church and the New Testament church. The church before Christ and the church after Christ. And the Old Testament church did indeed give birth to Jesus, as we see in his genealogies and in Romans 9, 4, and 5. The glorious description of this woman conforms to the description of Israel in Ezekiel 16, 9-14, and Paul's description of the splendor of the church in Ephesians 5, 27, and to John's vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 10-21. This idea of the church as the mother also fits well with the church as the bride of Christ, which we see in Revelation 22, 17, and 21, 2, and 9, and in Ephesians 5, 31, and 32. Saul, I'm sorry, Saul. Paul actually says that the Jerusalem above is our mother, in very similar language in Galatians 4, 26. The crown of 12 stars is probably the twelve apostles. In its New Testament form, the twelve patriarchs, twelve sons of Jacob in the Old Testament form. Now that we've seen and defined these various characters in the story, there are three other things in the story I'd like to point out before we get to 
what we can take away from this spiritually. First of all, if the woman is the Old Testament and New Testament church, then why is she crying out with birth pangs and in the agony of giving birth? What's that all about? Well, certainly the Old Testament people of God suffered a lot in the, prom in the process of bringing the Messiah into the world. But the emphasis here seems to be not in the woman's pain, but in the woman's crying out. I think her cries are the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. As a woman's cries in labor signify the coming of the child, so the cry of the prophets signified the coming of the child. Secondly, when the Messiah is finally born, the only thing we're told here at his birth is that he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now, we saw how this is the interpretive tool God gave us to know who this child is, but God could have used a hundred other descriptions which would have served the same purpose. So why this one? Why is to rule the nations with a rod of iron the one fact chosen to describe Jesus at his birth here? Might it be to explain why there is so much opposition to him as the story unfolds? Because they resent his authority? They want to be God? Could it be to make clear that in spite of such opposition to him and persecution, that there is no real threat to his dominion, that he's destined to reign? I think it's probably both. The third thing is, this child had enemies from before birth. He was the target of dark and malicious spiritual forces. As we read, a great dragon standing before the woman who's about to give birth, you know, waiting so that he might devour so it began before his birth, even though you don't find anything in Matthew or Luke about any op opposition to him before his birth. But much of the Old Testament can be understood in terms of Satan trying to eliminate the holy seed. Saul trying to kill David. Athaliah trying to kill Joash. Sennacherib trying to wipe out the family of Hezekiah. Haman trying to have all the Jews killed in the day of Esther. And then the New Testament, of course, we have the Herod trying to murder the child. And then Satan trying to tempt him into sinning. So before and after the birth, we see this opposition, this being targeted by Satan and his forces. Have you ever noticed how the demons knew who Jesus was even before the people did? 
every step of his earthly life, Jesus faced the full onslaught of demonic attack. His birth and his ascension represented the beginning and end of the time when he was within Satan's reach. So the opposition was intensified during those years. Jesus came to undo the work of the devil, we're told in 1 John 3.8. So that explains it. I mean, did you think that Satan was going to go down without a fight? Well, there's a second part to this vision, as we'll look at next week. But what can we see from this first part? What can we take from it to help us in our lives? After all, this vision is given so that we can understand why things in our lives are the way they are. The first thing is that there is wonderful news. There is indeed hope for the world. There is an answer to the human predicament. God has sent a male child born of the people of Israel. A ruler who lived only a short time on earth and is now with God in heaven. And he represents the hope of mankind. And this means that Jesus is our personal hope as well. Every hour of every day, Jesus is your hope. Not just when you come to the end of your life and you face eternity, but every hour of every day, Jesus is your hope. The fact is we have right now what we need. Satan loves to whisper in our ears that we don't have what we need. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. But if you have Jesus, you have what you need. We have a Redeemer. We have a helper. The most powerful way Satan gets people to look elsewhere is by persuading them that they don't have the thing they really need. No, but there's something better. There's something which will make you feel better, feel more secure, feel more happy feel more acceptable all lies from the evil one Jesus is in heaven with God we're told the child was caught up to God and to his throne but just because he's with God in heaven doesn't mean he's not with us every moment of every day he rules from heaven for us He pleads his blood in heaven on our behalf. And yet he's still present with us through the Holy Spirit, which is indeed the Spirit of Christ. The second thing. The problem is not everyone... The problem is that not everyone is excited about this hope, this answer, this ruler. 
You see, egged on by a lying deceiver, many have been convinced that the male child born of Israel is not the hope of the world. Some have even concluded not only that he is not the solution to mankind's problems, but he himself is actually man's biggest problem. We wish people didn't think this way. We wish Jesus was received and welcomed by all. That's what he deserves. But that's not the way the world is. God has provided mankind with another alternative. People are not forced to choose Christ. And many people, most people, have chosen the other path. It's not a democracy. God doesn't defer to human preferences and opinions. This is why they reject him. You see, God's solution to mankind's dilemma involves submission and surrender. It involves recognizing that he is Lord. He is the boss. He's the king. It's to be done his way. And those who won't go along with it, no matter how much they protest, no matter how much they cry injustice, will be dashed to pieces with a rod of iron. So the story of the coming of the Prince of Peace isn't a story of bringing peace and harmony to the world. It actually brings war. Simon, um, Simeon understood this when he prophesied over the young child, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And Jesus himself said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Matthew 10, 34-36. And so if we are faithful to Christ, we will be the objects of the same hatred and opposition which came against Jesus. Not because we're obnoxious, not because we hate others, but because people resent Christ. And if they hate Christ, they will hate Christ's people as well. And some of that opposition may come from our own loved ones, just like it did for Jesus. But unlike Jesus, some of the opposition also comes from our own hearts. There's a part of us which wants to go our own way and do our own thing. A part of us which fights against Jesus too. The opposition, of course, is led by and inspired by a dragonish enemy. That's why this story is here, to help us understand why we're not loved and appreciated and why people persecute Christians all around the world and all through history. 
glorious thing that we see here is that in spite of all the dragon's malicious efforts and all the malicious efforts of his fellows, his friends, the redemptive purposes of Christ cannot be thwarted. No matter how hard Satan and his friends work to derail them, God will not let it happen. Satan may have Herod the Great, but God's people have Jesus the Greater. And if Jesus is on our side, who can be against us? Oh, our health goals may not be achieved, our career ambitions may fail, our family dreams may end in disappointment, but it doesn't matter because Christ's redemptive purposes in this world and in our lives will certainly succeed. But there's one more really precious and beautiful thing here. God's protection of the Redeemer is not just out of love for Him, but out of love for us, out of love for the redeemed. God's not just concerned about the safety of the male child in the story. He's also concerned about the safety of the woman, the church. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. God has graciously prepared a place of refuge and nourishment for his children. What could that place be but the church? By God's grace, Jesus' church is made to be a place of nourishment. It's still the wilderness. It's not a place of luxury or indulgence. or It's not supposed to be. It's not heaven on earth. But God feeds his people there. There is water from the rock. And there is manna. And there is quail. Sadly, there are a lot of malnourished Christians choosing to avoid the nourishment that God has provided. There are a lot of grumbling Christians refusing to partake in the nourishment that God has provided. May God give his church grace to fulfill its calling to nourish its people. And may God's people recognize their need for this nourishment and faithfully come to eat. Now, what is the church being nourished with? What is the food that strengthens her? It is the word of God. It is the truth of Christ, which we eat just like the Apostle John ate the little scroll in chapter 10, verse 10. It's the milk that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn infants long for the spirit, pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As Jeremiah 3.15 says, 
I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So we live in a world hostile to the things of Christ and yet God still leads us in green pastures so our souls can be restored. He still prepares a table before us even in the presence of our enemies. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this table that is before us. Where you have set for us a feast to eat even in the presence of our enemies. Oh Lord, it may seem minimal. It may seem monotonous to some. Like the manna did to many in the wilderness. But we know, Lord, that this food that you have set on the table before us is just what we need as we wait patiently for the much greater feast that you have promised and which we therefore know we will enjoy with you in eternity. So now, O oh Lord, give us hungry hearts to eat and appreciate and be strengthened by the food that you have provided, the gift of your own Son, Jesus, for us. We pray in his name. Amen.